Glad you could be here. You know, we're beginning a new series for Christmas called A Season of Grace. I'm going to tell you something. You need grace. I need grace. Here's a funny thing about grace, is that you either need to receive it, probably daily, or you need to give it, probably daily. That's the way it is with grace. We're always giving, and we're always receiving. And yet many times it happens, and we don't even realize it. So this Christmas, we're going to spend some time the next four Sunday mornings, and then we're going to uh, climax our series on Christmas Eve, talking about this subject of grace. We're going to talk about grace theologically. We're going to talk about grace practically. We're going to talk about how grace needs, God extended grace to us, and how we as the body of Christ can extend grace to others. And I hope and I pray and, and, and I just really pray that this will be a life-changing series for all of us. Because if there is ever a time in the, in the history of the world that grace is needed, it's today. I mean, we need it more today than ever. In fact, my wife and I, I were up, we were up early this morning. We were praying. We were praying for grace and how we need it, how others need it. And I'm, I'm just so convicted that we need to hear what God has to say to us over the next few weeks. So you ready to go? All right, would you just pray with me real quick? I feel like we need one more word of prayer. Father, this morning as we look to Your Word, we pray that we would do so with an open posture, with an open mind, with open ears, with open hearts. God, we pray that, that our lives would just be open for You to work through them. And may this Word today encourage us to do that in Jesus' name. Church says? Well, you know, genealogy is important to some people. There's a Wall Street Journal article recently that said there's a good chance that you are a descendant of the Mayflower Pilgrims. Did you know that? Of the 102 people who crossed over on the Mayflower in 1620 and landed, you know, and celebrate Thanksgiving and all of that, out of the 26 people who landed there, it is said that in the 12 generations since that they've had children who've had children who've had children, that there are 25 million people who are probable descendants of the Mayflower. That could be you. I mean, wouldn't that be cool? You could find it out. Next time you put it on your, your you know, you go someplace and they give you a, a, a badge, you could, you could write your name, Tim, descendant on the Mayflower. I mean, that would be sure to impress, because genealogy is important to some people. In the Smithsonian, there was an article that was written about Granite Mountain in Utah. Now, I'm not sure if you know what Granite Mountain is, but Granite Mountain is, is a depository where the, uh, where the Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, where, where, this is the mountain where they deposit all the genealogical records of the world. Now, I'm not sure if you realize this, and I spent actually, uh, in some of my seminary studies, I spent some time talking with the uh, folks at the Mormon church and, and digging into some of these matters. Here's the deal. They care so much that everybody would go to heaven that they're making a genealogical record of every single human being that they can. And what they're doing is, is, is that they're baptizing all these people by proxy so that they may be able to go to heaven. 
That is super nice of them. Genealogy is important to some people. If you want to join the daughters of the American Revolution, you must somehow prove that somewhere up your family tree, a Yankee shot at a redcoat. And if you want to have any involvement in Boston's social events, you have to somehow make it onto the Boston Social Register. And this is the list by which people of, uh, of um, status are invited to all the grand parties in Boston. Because genealogy is important to some people. Now this morning, we're going to, uh, we're going to tackle something crazy. I have never, ever done this in my entire life as a pastor. I have never preached. It's hard to believe. In 30 years, I've never preached on Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 17. Have never done it. It's the genealogical record of the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, we all know that the genealogical sections in the Bible are probably considered to be the biggest yawns of all Scripture. I mean, after all, you have Rehoboam beget Abijah, Abijah beget Asaph, and Asaph beget Ralph. It's just boring stuff. But unless we only pay lip service to 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and reproof. Unless we ignore that, then here's what we need to learn this morning is that the begats have the opportunity to begat in us spiritual life. Because genealogy can be important. You see, the first century, it was, it, first century Jews were definitely into genealogical matters. And in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, this is what it says, but when he, speaking of John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Now, that's a way to win friends and influence people, right? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he anticipates their response, which is so cool. He says, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our fathers. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. They were going to try to evade the moment by citing their ancestral heritage and saying, you may be like this, but we we're sons of Abraham. Because to them, genealogy really mattered. There was another moment in the life of Jesus when, when in John chapter 8 when He was speaking with some Jews and He said to them, if you're able, if you abide in My word, you are truly My disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so the, the Jews that He was talking to, they became a little bit indignant. They said, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you can say you will become free? You see what they did again? They tried to evade the issue of life by citing their genealogical record. We're sons of Abraham. Because genealogy was important to them. Now, lest you think I'm joking, biblical genealogy is important for a few reasons. And let me just share with you a few of these. Biblical genealogy helps confirm the historical reliability of the Bible. When we look at the names in Scriptures, we can find these people in Matthew chapter 1 that they actually live in time and space as you and I know it. There is records of these folks. And so it begins to show that the Bible 
is true. The genealogy also reveals the importance of family to God and to the writers of the Bible. Every one of these persons listed in this Matthew passage of Scripture were real people who had real families that God was concerned about preserving because family is important to God. We also know that the genealogical record was important biblically because you could only serve in certain positions if you had a certain genealogical record. For example, if you were a Levite, the only way you could do worship was to be a Levite. It was important. We also know that the Bible reveals uh, uh, that the genealogical record proves many biblical prophecies. We see words here in these genealogies, and we know that they came true. When we talk about the scriptures we read earlier in the scripture reading, they point to Jesus Christ. They were prophesied back then. They point to Jesus now. The genealogical record helps us to confirm the succession of Jesus throughout history. But it also teaches, and this is where I kind of want to camp this morning, the genealogical record also teaches how God used a wide variety of individuals throughout history. And that's where I want us to camp. In your, in your program this morning, if you didn't find it in your Bible, we printed, it, we printed this for you. In your program on, on the inside flap, I think there's the, the printout of this text from Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 17. We, we printed it so that you could actually see it here. Now, this genealogical record, when you read it at first, to you and I, might not seem like that much. It's just a list of names of households, and yeah, Pastor Tim, we understand some of the reasons for its importance, but, but what does that really have to say to us? L let, me, let me just pause for a second and, and put you into the sandals of those who were living in that day. So here's Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he, he, he writes... The, he writes this gospel, what we now call a gospel. He writes this gospel, and in the very first two words, the Greek words mean literally the book of genealogy. Now, if you were a Jew and you were reading this text, those first few words of Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, would instantly remind you of what was written in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. They're not identical in terms of word order or word usage, but they are identical in terms of their concepts. If you were a Jew living in that day and you read this first text of Scripture, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, your mind would immediately go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. What Matthew was trying to say is, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, God created the world and all that's in it. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, what Matthew is trying to say is that now God is doing something new in this world. There is a new order. There is a new creation that God is creating from the tribes of old a new people that 1 Peter chapter 1 calls us a new people under, under Christ. So they would get that. They would see that immediately in their minds and their hearts and, and their, their, their attention would be given rise in this, in this genealogical text. There's a lot of um, nuances to this that I won't go into this morning, but I do want to call your attention to something that's also unusual about this text. In this genealogical text, there are the names of five people that should not be here. By ancient Near Eastern practice, by the normal concepts even of the Old Testament, these five names should not be included in this text. 
And if you look at the handout in your bulletin, we've highlighted those names for you. One is the name of Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Uriah's wife, and Mary. Now, I know it's Sunday morning. Some of you still are under the, the, the influence of tryptophan. But you can probably guess that there's a common thing among all those five names. Does anyone know what they are? They're all women. What was Matthew thinking? You see, in that day and age, you did not put women into the genealogical record. Why? Because women had no legal status. Sorry, women. It was true. Property seceded from male to male, from family to family, on down through the generations. And so the, the, the placing of the names of women into this genealogical record was unusual. So not only if you were a Jew living in that day would you have said, wow, something new is taking place in this text. But they're looking at it and said, this is even written differently than it's ever been written before. And there's a reason why Matthew included these women in this text. Let me, let me tell you why first woman is a woman by the name of Tamar. Now, it's probably not very often that you read about Tamar in your devotional readings. It's a very complicated text. You have to understand some background. So let me make this as, as simple as I possibly can. So there is this man by the name of Judah, who was the fourth born son of, of Israel. He had an oldest son whose name was Ur and Tamar was given to Ur as his wife. That's how they did it back then. Again, you don't have to like it. That's just how they did it. Families arranged for marriages. And so Tamar became Ur's wife. Problem was, was Ur was evil. In fact, the Bible says that God was so, that, that Ur was so evil that God killed him. He just killed him. We might not like to say it that way, but that's what happened. Bad guy, God takes him out. Now here became a problem. Because now Tamar was no longer married and there was no way to carry on the family line. Now, in, in, in the Old Testament, there was this concept called leveret marriage. In leveret marriage, it was the duty of the younger brother to marry the widow of his older brother. So that means if... And I, I tried this on my wife this morning because I have a younger brother. I said, honey, you know, if something happens to me, you get my brother, I will just not tell you her response. Brother, if you're listening, nothing personal. I'm telling you, if you lived in that day and leveret marriage was common, you would want to make sure that you were helping your dad help your brother pick out his wife because she very well could be your next wife. That's why families were, were so involved with one another. So Judah did what he was supposed to do. He decided that his next son, Onan, would be the wife for Tamar. But here was the problem with Onan. He, he did take her as his wife, but he did not want to bear a child with her because it, we, he would not be able to call that child his own. Now, you say, what's that about? He's the father, she would be the mother. That would be true physically, but legally, the child from Tamar would then be uh, in, in a different line, and so he would not have access to Tamar's son's privileges. So he said, I'm not going to do it. Again, not a nice guy, so God kills him. I, 
You didn't, you didn't read the chapter. I'm just saying, don't mess with God because he'll kill you. So now Judah's supposed to find a wife for Tamar, but he fails to do so. And in the process of this whole thing, his own wife dies. Now here, here's the weird twist, and I am, gonna, I am just going to clean this up because we might have some kids in here. So Tamar, uh, knowing, the, knowing the law, knowing what's supposed to happen, and Judah's not doing it, she decides that she is going to disguise herself uh, as a harlot and offer herself to Judah. Judah's wife has died. I'm sure he's lonely. He's walking down the street as the painting illustrates. He sees this, this woman here, who, and she's covered up, and she's got all the, she's got all the signs that says, uh, I will be with you tonight. So Judah and Tamar, they do that. Three months later, Tamar appears, and she's pregnant. And she says to Judah, this is your baby. And he says, ah, this ain't my baby. You know how that goes. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. But she says, I've got proof. So she pulls out three items that, that he had given to her on that night, his staff, his seal, and his cord. And he realizes she's right. Now, here's what's amazing about Judah. I, I'm going to give him props at, at, at this moment. He recognizes the wrong that had been done. And this is what he says in Genesis chapter 38, verse 26. He says, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Shelah. She knew what was right. She did the righteous thing, and he confessed it. And by the way, this is one of the first public confessions of personal sin in the Scripture. Now here's what's cool. Is Tamar and Judah, they end up staying married together, and they later have two other boys, one whose name is Perez and the other whose name is Zerah. And ironically, it tells us in the Scriptures, Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, it says that Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And it was from this line that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was born. You see how important Tamar is? to the Christmas story, to the birth of Jesus, yet you'll never see a Tamar in most church Christmas pageants. How about the other woman, Rahab? You know Rahab's story. This, one is, uh, this one's much easier. Remember, Joshua is leading the children of Israel into the promised land. They're going to go take over Jericho. They send two spies. The two spies go to scout out the strength of the foreign army. While they're there, the enemy finds out. They run and they hide. They ask Rahab to hide them. Rahab hides them under some flax. And, and she does so. In the whole process, she makes this bargain. Listen, I'm going to help you, but I'm only going to help you if you spare my family. And they say, yes, we'll do it, we'll do it. And, and she knew that she needed to do that because they were, the, the Israelites were going to come in and they were just going to ransack the city. You're evil, God kills you. They're going to kill everybody. She does that. And here's what it says about her in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. Remember Hebrews 11 is the, is the chapter in the Bible that's sometimes called the hall of faith. To make it into the hall of faith, you have to do something really good. By faith, it says, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And she appears in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. 
When was the last time you seen Rahab on a Christmas card? Or how about Ruth? You remember the story of Ruth. I mean, we, we cite part of it at, at weddings and in other occasions. The story of Ruth is that, that Naomi, as sons have died, and they're without a provider. So Naomi hears that, that there, is, uh, there is some prosperity in, in, back in her homeland of, of, Jeru- of Jerusalem and, and, and Bethlehem, etc., in that region. She decides to return to Judah. So she urges Ruth and Orpha, which, by the way, I have to say this, because I'm probably going to do it in just a moment. Every time I say Orpha, I always want to say Oprah. I know that's not who it is, but it comes out that way sometimes. She urges Ruth and Orpha to to remain in Moab with with their parents, but Naomi says, no, I'm going to go with you. You know the story. They get there. They eat by gathering corn alongside of the fields as they were allowed to do by Levitical law and that's how they eat and, and Boaz sees them he, has, he, he finds favor with them and he, gives, he tells his servants to give them more to eat so that they have plenty to eat. The, the, uh, Ruth and, 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 they, uh, and Naomi recognize this and so they're impressed by this and Naomi concocts this plan because Boaz is a part of the family tree in some kind of distant uh, and, and appropriate way so Ruth goes and lays at the feet of Boaz one night as a signal to say, listen, I, I, am, I am willing to be your wife. Long story short, Boaz is impressed because he's impressed. The Bible tells he's impressed partly because he's an older man and she's a younger woman. And, but he's, she has chosen him. They end up getting married. And this is what it says in Ruth chapter 4, verse 17. that he was the father of Jesse, the father of David, their son Obed, was the father of Jesse and the father of David. You see what Ruth's contribution was to the Christmas story? When was Ruth ever in a manger scene? How about this, this other lady who's not even mentioned by name, it just says David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. That's kind of an odd description. They don't mention her by name, but they mention her. And you know the story of Bathsheba, that Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, was one of the king's mighty men, and he was away at war. And David one day was, was looking out from his roof trough. He saw her bathing. She, had, she was bathing in a ceremonial cleansing because she, was, she had finished her menstrual cycle, so she was doing what the law had required. David saw that she was beautiful. He summons her to the palace. You know the story. She gets pregnant. She goes back home. She finds out. That uh, they have, they have an affair. She goes home. She finds out she's pregnant. When finding out that she's pregnant, David does all the stuff with, with Uriah and kills him and and all of those things. She comes and lives back with King David. In the palace, they get married. They have this newborn, and this newborn dies seven days later. Then the Bible tells us then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And then the Scriptures tell us that God loved this child and told the prophet to have him named Jedidiah, which is another name for Solomon, which means beloved by the Lord. And Solomon's in that family tree. Do you see? There are these four women, none of whom's none of whom has a story that many of us would consider to be appropriate for the Christmas story. They're unusual women with unusual stories that God somehow uses. 
And in this series, what we're talking about is this idea of grace. And let me give you the simplest definition of grace that's possible. It is simply this. It's unmerited favor. It's unmerited favor. Grace is unmerited favor. It's favor. You know what favor is? Favor is when someone makes you a a favor. They want to do something for you that is positive. It's a blessing. It's something good. It's something that when you receive it, you are glad that you have received it. It, That's a favor. It's It's when positive things happen as a result of someone just giving them to you. That's favor. That's blessing. Favor is good. It's awesome. It's incredible. But the Bible tells us that not... Grace is not just favor, but it's unmerited favor. It means it's favor that we did not deserve. It's unmerited. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. It's just something that God or someone chooses to give to another person simply because they want to. And you see, when you give grace, it's not about the recipient. It's about the giver. When God gives us His grace, it's not about what I need or want necessarily, but it's about what God wants to give to me. It's His favor that He is bestowing on me all of these things. You see, grace is the love of God shown to the unlovely. It's the peace of God given to the restless. It's the pardon to those who deserve a full sentence. It's the uncoerced initiative of goodness of God towards all of creation. That's what grace is. That's what God wants to give to us, and that's what we should give to one another. When we look at this genealogical record, what we see all the way through this is the favor of God. We see the favor of God towards these women. We see the favor of God in using these women for you and for me. You see, in a time in history when genealogies did not include women, Matthew put these women into the genealogical record, even though they were tarnished in some way. He includes these women. Three of them are Gentile women. But here is the message, the subtle message to you and I. But if you were a first century Jew reading this genealogy, here was the message that you would receive. It would be an in-your-face kind of message. And it's this. Matthew was telling the world that no one is outside of God's plan. No one is outside of God's plan. And although women and Gentiles were looked down upon in this culture, God did not look down upon them. God used them. He used them not only for His glory, but He used them to bring His very Son into the world. That's God's grace shown to us. So when we read Tamar's story, we see a story where God's graciousness is shown to the desperate. When we read Rahab's story, we see how God's grace spares people from destruction. When we read Ruth's story, we see how God's grace extends to people from outside our tribe. And when we read Bathsheba's story, we see God's grace of forgiveness given to us. There is a wideness in God's mercy. There's a wideness in God's mercy that He would include Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And here's the cool part of the story. If God would include them in this genealogy, then it means that God has a place for you in His family. 
You're a part of God's genealogy. God has a place for you. He has a, he has a place for me. And God's genealogy tells me that there's even room for failures. That's me. There's even room for people who sometimes are, are stubborn with God. Are you been stubborn with God? There's room for people who rebel against God. There's room in God's plan for each and every one of us because we are in His genealogy. I'm in this genealogy. You are in this genealogy. You see, I trust this Christmas that if you have never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have never put your name in this genealogy, then you can. Did you know, here's how the genealogy reads. It reads, Abraham was the father of Isaac, who was the father of David, who was the father of Joseph, who was the father of Jesus, who begat Tim. That's how I'm in the genealogy. These people existed in part so that Jesus could come and Jesus could bring me in. You see, now, because I've said yes to Jesus, now I am a son of God. If you say yes to Jesus, you are a son of God or a daughter of God. Your name, while it may not be in this scripture text, your name is written down in the genealogy of record. It's not in Granite Mountain. But I guarantee you, it's going to be in heaven. But you say, I know I hear this all the time when I talk to folks. They say, but pastor, do you understand exactly what you're saying? Because if you knew my life, if you knew what I've done, there's no way He would let me in in this genealogy. If you knew my thoughts, there's no way God would want me to be a part of His family. If you knew what, what I was thinking about doing tomorrow, there's, there is no possible way that, that anyone would ever allow me to be a part of something like this. And that's true. Except there's God's unmerited When I was in college, um, they, they, we had this thing. Um, I was at Warner University for my undergrad degree. And we had this thing called the Apostles Club. I don't know if they still do that or not. But that was so cool. Because when you joined the Apostle Club, you became an apostle. So I walked around saying, Apostle Tim. Actually, it was a little A, not a big A. Because apostle just means sent one. It was, it was a group of us who were in college, who were young preachers, and what they would do is they would send us young preachers and inflict us upon unsuspecting crowds. Now these unsuspecting crowds were usually places who, who wanted someone to come and speak to them, but who didn't want to give them any money. And that was us. You know, once in a while when we were done, most of these, a lot of times these were like, um, these were like the RV parks that had like a, you know, they would have a winter, you know, winter worship service and us young college students, you know, we would go in and we would preach to, you know, we, you know, we were 18 or 19 years old and we were preaching to people who were, you know, 60, 70, 80, some of them 100 years older than us. We'd go in and we'd preach to them. You know, and sometimes once in a while, a, you know, a little old lady would walk up and she'd slip us five. Man, we'd, we'd feel like we, we'd just, 
But we would go and we would preach at these places. We, you know, we were in preaching classes. We didn't hardly know what we were doing, but they, they were so gracious to us. They extended grace to us so that we could learn. But I remember the first time at the Apostles Club when they said, Tim, we've got an assignment for you this next week. Oh, cool, man, I'm ready to go. God's been speaking, I'm ready. Let's get on with it, let's go. And they said, yeah, you're going you're gonna to go down to the prison this week and speak. Uh, Apostles Club, I don't see that anywhere in the charter. I said, don't worry, don't worry, you'll, you'll be totally safe. I didn't have you. I needed you back then. We went there to preach. I was, I was scared. I didn't know what to expect. You know, I'd heard things, we'd seen things, all that kind of stuff. You know, first time, you know, first time in a, in a, in a prison of my own free will. Just kidding. And we go in and we have a worship service. And the inmates, I'm telling you, if you want to know how to worship, sometimes the most freeing experience is when you're captive. Because when they were singing and they were worshiping, these men were all in. They were all in. Yeah, they had been held captive in their bodies, but they had been set free by a gracious God who loved them with unmerited favor. Yes, they had done some horrible things. Yes, they had done some things that you and I would have a difficulty forgiving. But God was able to forgive them and He gave them His love. He gave them Jesus Christ. And I remember I was able to stand up there and I was able just to preach and and preach. And these men were so into it. And I, I know it must have been terrible. But when it was over, they encouraged me. I tried to encourage them. I was 19 years old. Here is the lesson I learned that day. A lesson I had never seen before, but a lesson I learned that day. That God can save anyone. Anyone. And that means you. And this morning, if you don't find yourself in this, this spiritual, the spiritual lineage of Jesus, if you don't find yourself there, if you don't consider yourself a part of the family of God, we're going to give you an opportunity during this last song to come and to pray with someone who can help you have that experience, who can help you know Jesus Christ. You see, if God would allow Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba into His kingdom, you know what He would do? He'd let them sing on our stage. Wouldn't it be awesome if those four ladies could be up here just singing their hearts up because they understood God's grace. They understood what it's all about. And here's the deal. If they're good enough for God, you're good enough for God. And brothers and sisters, if you're good enough for God, you're good enough for me. Because grace is what we extend It's what we receive. This morning as we sing this last song, if if you feel that God has has been speaking to you and you need to come and pray, we've got altars on both sides of of the auditorium. Just just come and, and someone will meet you there and they will pray with you. And if you're not a part of this family line of Jesus, you can be today. Would you stand and would you come?
grace of God is it, it's like it's like a fresh rain on a hot day, isn't it? Amen. Sometimes when when we've been in the church for a long time, we forget what it's like. But if you could go home today and just remember that night when you were saved, what Jesus did and, and the burdens that were released and how you felt that night. As we grow in Christ, sometimes we lose those feelings and that's not all bad because we don't want a faith based just on feelings. But we need to remember with our minds, our hearts, our souls, our bodies, we need to remember what that was like. Because if you remember that, you cannot be silent. You cannot stay inside the four walls of your own home, but, but you've got to get out. You've got to say, you've got to talk to people about what Jesus has done. That's His grace. We receive it, and then we extend it. That's what we're called to do. Let me pray a prayer of dedication. Not a, not a, not a closing prayer. This is not a benediction. I don't like that word. Because benediction makes us feel like we're done. We're not done, right? We just, we just started. See, to me, to me, <laughs> to me, my week starts right now. When worship is done, that's the start of my week. Because I know that until next Sunday, unless Jesus comes, I've got my work laid out for me. And God needs to help me do it. So this is a prayer of dedication and blessing as you go forward. So let's pray together. Father, as we leave this place, we do so empowered by Your Spirit. Encourage God to do the work that You have called this church to do. Father, here are Your servants. None of us are perfect. Lord, we, we have issues and we have problems, but God, in the midst of all of that, You will use us by Your grace to be a blessing to someone else. Lord, as we have received unmerited favor, let us show it to the world around us this week. Bring us back next week, God, excited to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said amen. All right, let's go.